Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, we're looking into long COVID. It's estimated that millions of Americans suffer from this mysterious condition, many of them disabled by their symptoms. But there's still no definition of what long COVID actually is. And this has hampered investment into research and treatment of this troubling new disease. I'm Angela Vasquez. I am 36 years old and I got COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic and have been sick for over three and a half years with long COVID. So when I first got sick, it felt pretty mild. Both my husband and I had been quarantining and about three weeks in, we both went to the grocery store. And three days later, I realized that I had lost my sense of smell. And after a shower, I couldn't warm up. And that's when I started to get nervous. I called my doctor via telemed and said, these are my symptoms. I think I have COVID. And she said, yep, that sounds like COVID, but we're not testing anyone unless they're hospitalized. Call me if you can't breathe, but otherwise stay home. And three weeks in, I woke up gasping for breath. I managed to get an appointment again, telemedicine, and they said, oh, this just sounds like asthma. So I do have mild asthma. Here are some steroids and an antibiotic. You should feel fine. I took the first dose of the steroids and immediately my fever spiked. What was initially presented as a mild cold started a slow march to what ended up being a severe illness. More shortness of breath, intense cognitive dysfunction. I could not hold a conversation with my husband, couldn't sit up straight. I was barely able to feed myself, wasn't sleeping, and eventually went to the emergency room several times, but I was discharged each time despite having symptoms like my face drooping, being unable to walk because one whole side of my body was numb, not knowing my name. I was discharged as a psych patient. When I later explained my symptoms, to both a cardiologist and a neurologist. They were convinced that I had experienced transient ischemic attacks or mini strokes verified by emergency room blood work that showed severe levels of blood clots. I had been afraid to tell anyone that I was actually having anaphylaxis that I felt my throat closing up anytime I tried to eat something. All of the doctors that I had talked to were telling me that this was just anxiety and that I just needed to rest and meditate. As a last ditch effort, I made an appointment, a telemedicine appointment with an old doctor that I had only seen once. And she got on and said, this can't be anything else but COVID. We know that COVID is causing severe blood clots and you have that here in your lab work. 
We also know that COVID is making people have neurological symptoms consistent with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, a neurological disorder that stresses your nervous system out when you are upright. And the other condition is what was called mast cell activation syndrome that essentially means your immune system is hyperactivated. I have to take many medications around the clock and I spend a lot of my day laying down. I am pretty limited in what I can do outside of the house. It's really hard for me to socialize virtually or in person. So when I choose to do things from taking an extra meeting or doing a Zoom call with a friend, I will finish that hour with a lot of pain. I'll have a fever. I will often be short of breath. So before I got COVID, I had been a runner and I was incredibly active. I worked probably 50 hours a week and on the weekends had a really full social life. There is still an overwhelming belief that long COVID and all post-viral illnesses, including ME-CFS, are psychosomatic. Patients continue to go to their primary care doctors with medically unexplained symptoms and be told that it is stress or that it is anxiety, that nothing is wrong with them, and that focusing on their symptoms is why they are having symptoms. The folks today with long COVID need financial support. We need access to basic health care that can greatly improve our community's quality of life. And for many of us, not all of us, stop the slow march toward severe disease and being completely bedridden. My name is Ivanka Hall. I am 56 years old, and I am the executive director of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition. I got COVID in January of 2021. I realized that I was a long hauler when I still had a lot of issues with my stomach, brain fog, not being able to sleep. I lost massive amounts of hair. COVID played ping pong with my body. It just figured out where it could hit and that's what it did. Probably about the seventh day, I said, you know, I think I want to go for a drive. When I first got in my car, I couldn't remember what I was supposed to be doing. Then I got to the light, which is less than a block up from my house, and I couldn't remember what I was supposed to do at a stoplight. And I realized I needed to go back home. 
I work with a lot of researchers across the country, they told me that I needed to go to the hospital and ask them to give me the drug that was available to the community at that time, but that my community was not receiving. So I went into the emergency room. The doctor came in and he says, oh, well, I see that you have COVID and you have some distress. And I said, yes, but I want you to give me this medicine. And I think I pronounced it wrong, but this is how it's spelled. And I know that you have it. And he said, no, we're not going to give it to you. And I said, oh, yeah, you are. And so I was able to get access to a drug because I went to a hospital and raised holy hell and demanded it. So I'm thinking, okay, it'll get better. Okay, I'm just having this issue because it's COVID and it'll go away. And then knowing that now this is two years later, the brain fog and not being able to remember basic words, that I'm still having issues with my stomach. There are still things that I cannot eat. I'll get sick. A lot of times, you know, people who have COVID and you're going to your primary care physician and saying you're having these issues and they're like, well, we don't see anything wrong. Everything looks fine to us. And it's like, okay, well, you don't see it, but I feel it. I did not go back to any of the a COVID clinic or anything like that. For me, I went to my primary care doctor. She said that I have long COVID and she's asked me about seeing other people. And I'm like, you know, I'm okay with seeing you. To go see this specialist, that specialist, and that specialist to leave my work to go to medical appointments and where all they're doing is drawing blood. And there was no other things that they could do to help improve my health status. I am on the advisory team for the recovery study. And so that team is actually there to look at the issue around brain fog, the neuro team. Myself and another study participant kept talking about the issues that were impacting us and our communities. And those things were not being heard. And so now that the study part for Neuro is finished, they asked us to sign on to their finished report and we refused. If you're doing a study on the community and the voice of the community does not come up to the top, then you're not doing a study on the community. We have such a distrust of the medical establishment that the large majority of African-Americans that had COVID and think that they're long haulers, they're not contacting a doctor. Some of them are trying to treat themselves at home using some of the holistic pieces that we know. And I think the other ones that are going to their primary care physicians, if they have one, they're going in, but they aren't associating what's going on with them with long COVID. There was no equity in COVID, particularly around whether you had access to a test to know whether you had COVID. And so how many African-Americans had COVID that never took a test that now are long haulers? And now when they go on to the doctors, the doctor is saying, there's nothing in your chart that says that you ever had COVID. There has been a non-acknowledgement of the impact of COVID and the impact of long COVID on the African-American community because we did not receive the response that we needed to begin with. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. 
Today, I'm joined by Dr. Grace McComsey. She's Vice Dean for Clinical and Translational Research at Case Western University, and also Dr. Cliff Rosen. He's a professor at Tufts Medical School and an associate editor at the journal. Dr. Grace McComsey, I'd like to start with you. Do we have a definition of long COVID? What is it? So defining long COVID is the million dollar question. For now, what we know is that long COVID consists of having symptoms at least a month after a COVID infection. That's what people refer to as long COVID. Symptoms could be persistent, intermittent, all of that still consists with long COVID. Now, NIH doesn't call it long COVID. We call it post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. And I think for a good reason, because we are worried about what damage or sequelae SARS-CoV-2 does to the body, even in people who apparently have a complete recovery, but they still have a lot of inflammation, even though they don't have symptoms. The important thing is the effect of it is the body recognizing there is something there that's not right and trying to eliminate it. And what that means is you see activation of the immune system, both innate immunity and T cells. You see increased systemic inflammation. Sometimes you see new onset autoimmune disease after a COVID infection. So we have bits and pieces, I would say, of the cause, but we still don't have enough information to put all of that together. So Dr. Cliff Rosen, we don't have a standard definition of long COVID. Why not? I think the the symptom complex is so varied that it's been very difficult. We know there are clusters of symptoms We don't want to exclude symptomatology in some individuals, but again, we don't have a single definition, and that makes it difficult for primary care providers, for researchers, and particularly for patients, what they consider their condition is. So let's talk a little bit about the presenting of these symptoms and this lack of definition, what has been the result? So I'll start by saying there are multiple systems that are involved. And so you may have some problem with your blood vessels, and it may exhibit itself by either low blood pressure, having diabetes, or by having chronic fatigue. But because we see so many organ systems involved, the complaints can be quite varied. Everybody has a different response to the virus. And so this makes for a very difficult unifying hypothesis. And so separating those out is extremely difficult from a cause of long COVID. So Dr. McComsey, what's been your experience about why we're hearing from patients that their symptoms have been dismissed and that they're not getting the attention they need. There's inappropriate dissemination of information about long COVID to clinicians. So the clinicians usually will do a battery of tests, just the usual stuff that we do in a, in a visit. And all of them may be 
normal or there's nothing specific in the lab. So unfortunately, they end up dismissing what the patient is feeling as just stress or anxiety or depression. So a lot of clinicians are not going to believe something unless they have objective way to diagnose it. And this is why recover, for example, something that Cliff and I had put a lot of time into the last two years, this big initiative funded by NIH, is really trying to define post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2, and not just by symptoms. We're trying to find a comprehensive definition that put together labs, some of the clinical examination variables, as well as the symptoms all together to see if we can define it better. Once we have a good definition, then clinicians will not dismiss it. They will have a way to objectively define it and not just say, oh, you're stressed or you know, you're fatigued because you have kids you're taking care of. So unfortunately, that's why a lot of patients are so frustrated because they feel nobody is listening to them. Today, I got an email from one of our patients and he said, I've given up. Nobody listens to me. I want to go in the hospital and get these tests. I want to find out what's wrong. It's been almost two and a half years. I can't get disability. I'm living in a trailer. So this is a a guy who was a high-functioning individual prior to his infection who has just struggled, and it's circular. It just becomes like a whirlpool. He gets sucked in to this system, and he has no answers. And we hear this all the time. Why do you think there is this kind of pushback in the medical community and beyond? There's not a single symptom complex. There's not a single definition. And primary care providers, they're looking for algorithms. They're looking for, if you see this, you treat this. And that's not what long COVID is. Long COVID is a journey. And it can be progressive. It can be remitting. But it requires time and effort to try to understand what each of the individual person's course is. And that just can't exist in this healthcare system among primary care providers. There just isn't time for them to go through this. Now, from a political standpoint, COVID is a bad word. Uh, People don't want to talk about it. People don't want to think about the pandemic. It connotes government overreach, and people believe that we should just get past this. There's not the political will to say, look, we are dealing with millions of people who have these symptoms. We need to do something about it. And it wasn't in the president's budget. We're trying to really get the Senate to increase funding. There's dysfunction in in Congress, and nothing's going to happen. So I think there's a political non-will to do anything and to think we're past this and ignore the societal implications of a very uh, difficult and unusual condition. And on top of that, we don't have any treatments. So when you don't have any treatments and you have a primary care provider who can't elucidate exactly what's going on and do not have treatment options, that becomes extremely difficult. So you have testified before Congress. What are you trying to do with government support here? 
Well, I think one of the big things is that we're trying to get these centers of excellence, these long COVID multidisciplinary clinics that can be established around the country, not just in a few selected places. We'd like to see, particularly among recover investigators, people who are currently doing this, like Grace and I, support for centers that provide a multidisciplinary approach to treating this. That means physical therapy, psychiatric assistance, medical evaluation, and approaches to treatment through clinical trials. That, I think, is the beginning of absolute recognition that we're dealing with a long-term disease and that we need the support to not only find out what the definition is, but to actually comprehensively treat this. So we went to Congress, and Susan Collins is a big advocate for uh, long COVID research, and she was able to add in $5 million in the Senate supplemental budget. But that's a tiny amount when you think about the resources an individual consumes when they're sick with long COVID. It is a very tiny amount of money relative to a lot of other diseases. So I I feel honestly when the Congress gave Recover Initiative the $1.2 billion, they thought it's a lot of money. You guys should figure it out very fast with $1.2 billion. The reality, even though it sounds like a lot of money to, to everybody individually, this is not a lot. When you talk about research, You know, we enrolled in less than two years, 15,000 people from all over the U.S. And because there are so many organs involved, we have to do investigations of every organ. So all of that costs money. In addition, some of the 1.2 billion is going for potential treatments of long COVID. So it's relatively a very small amount of money. HIV was not solved by 1.2 billion, I guarantee you. It was like tenfold that before we were able to make HIV patients have the same life expectancy that people who didn't have HIV. We made progress, but it took a lot of billions. Recover initiative, there is no other initiative that in less than two years enrolled 15,000 people, and this is only the adult cohort. There is a pediatric cohort, there's a pregnancy cohort. Yes, 1.2 billion is a lot of money, but it's not enough to find a cure, biomarkers, be able to understand long COVID. It's, It's a very complex condition that we're still scratching the surface with it. So can you give me a sense of the scope of this problem One survey the government did a few months back showed that the estimated cost of long COVID, at least the minimum cost, is a trillion a year. It's all these productive people who are working, who are having active productive lives, and suddenly they're on disability. So there's a lot of loss of productivity in the United States. And we talk about workforce issues. We can't find enough staff. We can't find enough nurses in the hospitals. Well, guess what? A lot of nurses have long COVID. A lot of them had to retire early. A lot of my physician colleagues have brain fog. These are very active, very smart people who suddenly their lives were disrupted. And this is why 
a lot of money should be invested because it's worth it. Even if you just care about money, it is really a very worthy investment. I think the recent estimate about 75 million people worldwide have long COVID, and I suspect that it's even higher than that. That's probably a gross underestimate. So it's really quite diffuse in the communities. And the loss of function is very frustrating to individuals, particularly when they can't get disability and when they're robbed of their resources to be able to work. And I think that's one of the frustrations at the patient level is people are not recognizing providers, insurers, government officials are not recognizing this is a disease. This affects their daily lives and nothing is being done for them. And they feel very frustrated with that. So it's widespread and it's not going to get better anytime soon. So do we have potential treatments? Do people get better? I mean, what do we have or not have here? So very few people get better. Now, some mild case I've seen improve and almost resolve totally. But people in 2020 who had COVID and they have the worst long COVID case, I have not seen any significant improvement. So that tells us that this condition is not going to go away with time. So the idea, if you still have virus, you know, reservoir hiding somewhere, maybe by giving a longer duration of Paxlovid, you'll be able to get that virus, decrease the inflammation. So recover is working, already enrolling in two and working in two other. We have four total clinical trials. Now that's very limited. That's only four investigations of a very, very complex with a lot of different potential manifestations. So it's a great start, but we need many more than that for sure. How do doctors tell whether these are long COVID symptoms or something else? Well, we call long COVID the diagnosis of exclusion, meaning you really have to exclude other medical conditions. Because we don't have a way to definitely diagnose long COVID, we have to rule out everything else that could do that to the patient. And then, and then you end up with, it's probably long COVID. I mean, that, unfortunately, that's all we have. But it is important that they exclude other conditions that the patient may have. So you have to exclude and give a good workup to exclude everything else, but there's no definite way to diagnose long COVID. So you take the symptoms they have and you say, okay, that's consistent with what's reported in the literature about symptoms that could be long COVID. So it's not a definite diagnosis. It's whatever you're left with after you rule out everything else. So the complication of that is that a lot of providers do a very thorough job ruling out other causes, doing laboratory studies for thyroid disease and vitamin D deficiency, et cetera. When they're left with nothing on the spreadsheet that shows anything, that's when the problems occur because then they're left with no diagnosis based on a specific test. And so we might call it long COVID, but then they drop the ball. There's nothing we can do or we'll send you to a specialist who will try to define something else. So Dr. McCombsey, how would you define what Recover is doing and what is needed beyond that? 
Yeah, so recover is, I see it as three different layers. The first layer is more like epidemiology. This is where like define COVID, understand it, understand the recovery. If somebody had COVID, how long does it take to get better? So so that's more like the, the large epidemiologic study. Another layer is on a subset of patients who are in recover. I mean, we're now, you know, planning biopsies, MRI, CTs. So we're doing a lot of mechanistic studies beyond just survey and lab tests. So the third thing is the clinical trials. So that's the four clinical trials that are now ongoing or planned that Recover is doing. And we're hoping for many more after that. And Paxlovid is one. uh, There's one called Neuro. It uses different devices to try to improve cognition and brain fog. One is for people who have sleep disorders, as well as one is immune for people who have more like autoimmunity, trying different strategies. So it's for different manifestations of long COVID. Do you feel like there's hope given the fact that we don't really have clinical centers, we don't have training, we have a start of funding for research. What's your sense of, is there hope here? I think there's hope. I think that uh, what we have to do is make everybody aware that this is a problem that's gonna continue to plague us for a long time, and that we have to continue our efforts. Recover is producing manuscripts all the time on data from our cohorts. And this information is really, really important. The first big paper that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association earlier this year began to set out a definition. What it did is raise the level of consciousness. Look, we're beginning to understand this. We need to take the next steps. Rachel, in terms of hope, I have a lot of hope. Whenever you have a lot of investigators who are so passionate about an area of research. Listen, I I personally don't have to be doing long COVID research. I have plenty to keep me busy in HIV, but, (laughs) but I'm very passionate because I see patients suffering and I feel I gotta do something. I have to help even a little piece of the puzzle. Whenever you see that for investigators and you see patients who are frustrated, who keep the passion of investigators going, you are gonna get the results. Thank you both so much for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome, yeah, pleasure to be here. That's Dr. Grace McComsey. She's Vice Dean for Clinical and Translational Research at Case Western University, and also Dr. Cliff Rosen. He's a professor at Tufts University School of Medicine and an associate editor at The Journal. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. We had help from producer Dr. Sue Ellen Lee and our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Next time, Alzheimer's disease. What can we offer to patients and their families? Fragmented care, delay in diagnosis, nihilism, stigma, limited treatment options. That's the state of Alzheimer's disease. And fortunately, we have some new tools, diagnostic tests, new treatments, the research that's coming. And we're just at the beginning stages. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.